praise God, have really enjoyed the music specials and the fellowship this weekend. It's been a great blessing to be with you and I thank Pastor Matthews for the gracious invitation to uh, be here and also I'm very thankful for the very kind and warm hospitality of the Alvarez family who shared their family with me for lunch today and I had the, the blessing of sharing some of my uh, my story, as I call it. Everybody's got a story. Right, Amos? Everybody's got a story. Might be a short story, but if you know Christ, you've got a story. And uh, that hymn that says, we've a story to tell to the nations. And uh, if you know Christ, you have a story to tell. So very thankful for that. Thank you for your prayers and kind words of encouragement. And uh, to all those of you who stayed awake through the preaching, we're very thankful for that too. Uh, I know it was a, it's an effort on such a beautiful day here in sunny, soggy Sydney. It's just been, uh, it's been magnificent, but we've enjoyed it very much. I was talking with my wife briefly this afternoon, and she sends her greetings and thanks you for her, your prayers for her. Thank you for praying for our granddaughter, Bella. Uh, she's in non-talking mode to Poppy at the moment, so... Uh, I guess I'm I'm not on the on the well, I guess I'm on the naughty list. Uh, that happens when you tell people the truth. Sometimes they don't want to talk about it. But please be in prayer for her. I'll be going to visit her at the hospital tomorrow afternoon, and uh, hopefully we can make some uh, progress there. It seems every time we spend time together, uh, she moves in the right direction, and uh, we're really praying for the Lord to undertake for her. We would covet your prayers. Uh, for our upcoming ministries next weekend, uh, Thursday through Sunday. Lord willing, I'll be at MacArthur Baptist with Brother Dennison and the people out there somewhere. I don't know which way is MacArthur from here? That way. Go that way. So please be there, uh, be in prayer for us. We have a, uh, a workers' dinner and a, a youth meeting and a men's breakfast. And I believe they have their anniversary on the sun, uh, next Sunday which will be a great blessing. Then we have ministries coming up at Faith Baptist in Faulkner as well as uh, at our home church in Calvary. Uh, then we'll be going to uh, Lighthouse, uh, Lifegate Baptist Church in Brisbane for Thursday through Sunday of meetings. And then we have three consecutive weeks in Adelaide uh, at Oasis Baptist, uh, South City Baptist and um, Oasis Baptist before we go back to the Arabic church in Melbourne and uh, finish up for the year at uh, Ballarat at Heritage Baptist. So uh, the Lord's given us a great calendar, a great itinerary, a lot of opportunities to preach the gospel and to try and seek to be a blessing to God's people. And uh, so we're, we're encouraged in the prayers of God's people. I think I sent a copy of my itinerary to you. And uh, if you would like to pass it around, we would cover it the prayers of God people. We even wore an old tie tonight for for our friend from Grafton. And amazing. How old were you when I saw you in Grafton, brother? Seven or eight. Seven or eight. Look at him now. <laughs> this 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 is what ministry does to you. Look how it's aged him. From the time I last saw him to how he is now. Seriously, it's a, it's it's wonderful. It always gets such a blessing to to actually get opportunity to bump into people along the way and see them serving the Lord. Got to catch up with my friend, Brother Ryan. Uh, Ryan was in Singapore and some youth camps with us in Perth uh, years ago, and he's still here. Some people just don't take the hint. I mean, you take them away somewhere, you try and get rid of them, they just keep hanging on. But uh, so it, it's been a great blessing. So thank you, Pastor Matthews and Mrs. Matthews, uh, and uh, thank you, Condell Park Bible Church. In the scripture, it tells us in Numbers and chapter 23, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? And hath he not spoken, and shall he not make it good? I want us to consider tonight the promises of God as they are recorded in the word of God. Second Peter, of course, in chapter 1 tells us that God hath given unto us exceeding great and precious promises and that it is by these promises that we are made partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. What God tells us there is that he has given to you and I through the promises of his word, through the indwelling of his spirit, 
through the leading of the risen Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, God's promises give to you and I everything we need to live a victorious, joyful Christian life to his glory and for his praise. There are no excuses for a defeated life. There are no excuses for a doomed soul. There's no excuses for, uh, for a broken church. There's no excuses for lost souls, no excuses for anything. God, by his promises, has given us everything we need. Now, when I mention the promises of God, we need to keep this in mind. That when God makes a promise, it's not like you and I make promises. You see, the promises of God, the strength of a promise, moreover, the success of a promise, is really dependent upon the source of the promise. I remember years ago when I was traveling quite frequently, I would go away to four to six weeks at a time, jump on a little plane in Townsville and fly different places around the country. And uh, during the time that I was away each day, we'd be communicating with home and reading the right act to the children to make sure everybody was doing what they're told. And, uh, but toward the end of the trip, you know, uh, the kids will know, you know, Daddy, you're going to bring home a surprise. You have a treat for us. Kids always want a treat. And so, you know, sometimes we'd bring them home, you know, a new pair of sneakers or bring them home a new book or a new Bible or, or something like that. Or maybe when we come home, you know, when, we go, when I get home, we're, we're going to do something. We're going to go away for, for a Friday, Saturday. We're going to go out camping for the night. We're going to go to the beach. And so always, always something to, to whet the appetite. This is in the week leading up to coming home. And one year I said to him, you know, well, when I come home, school's out. Sorry, Brother Ron, this, this is just my, my, my logic. I said, you know, school's out, I'm going to pull you out of school, and we are going fishing. And the kids were just, oh, Now, if you're a parent and you've ever taken four children fishing, you understand this is a dumb thing to do. And I don't know where the thought came from, but it got blurted out. It was out there. They grabbed it both hands and ran with it. And every time I spoke for the next week is, we going fishing, Dad, we going fishing, Dad. They're thinking of fishing. To them, fishing is running up and down the Lucinda jetty, you know, tripping over everybody else's fishing creel and tripping over rods and, and you know, just throwing rocks in the water and having a wonderful time. But my idea of fishing with them is untangling lines, pulling hooks out of fingers, you know, trying to resurrect the bait that they've stomped into the bitumen and everything else like that, and generally screaming and yelling, get away from that, stand back, don't do this, don't do that. And nobody's got a rod in the water, nobody's going to catch it. But this is fishing hustler style with children. When I arrived in Townsville, it looked very black up there on the horizon. And as we got closer to town, the wind began to blow and the sky got really, really black. And as you go from Townsville to Ingham and you're driving almost west at one stage, you're looking out toward an area called Upper Stone and it's just black. It's just pitch black. And you can see these clouds rolling in from up in the north and the west. And before long, before I even got in the driveway, it was bucketing down rain. It's raining cats and dogs and turtles and dolphins. I mean, it's just, it's just you know, and you know what a tropical storm looks like? I mean, you, when you have a, a rainstorm here in Sydney, that's a shower. I mean, I'm talking about places where they get 10 inches of rain in two or three hours. And it's just absolutely drenched everything. And so we are not going fishing. To an adult, that's obvious. Not to a child. Not to a 10-year-old, to a 6-year-old. No, 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 no. You said fishing, we're going fishing. And so parents have to be quick. You've got to think on your feet. So what do I do? I go to KFC. I go visit the colonel and I buy a bucket of chicken. More chicken than four children could eat in a year, but nevertheless, bucket of chicken. Drive around the corner to Mitch's, which is a little ice creamery in Ingham, get a couple of tubs of their favourite ice cream, and I arrive at the school, throw open the door, they all leap in, and the first thing I say is, now listen, and before I get any further, they say, we're going fishing! And I'm like, no, we're not going fishing, kids. I mean, look at the weather. They're not looking at the weather. They're looking at me with big puppy eyes and tears. But, Dad, you promised. 
All I heard for the next hour was, you promised. But Dad, you promised. See, God's promises are not like that. God's promises are ironclad. They're fixed. They're settled. God is not a man that he should lie. And these exceeding great and precious promises, they are our buckler. They are our strength. They are our security. I mean, the promise of eternal life, according to Titus chapter 1, is given by God who cannot lie. And this is reiterating exactly here what God has spoken here to Moses and to the children of Israel. God is not a man that he should lie. Now, I want us to consider one of my favorite promises in the Bible. And we'll start here in John's Gospel and chapter 14. In John and chapter 14, we're going to consider the promise of his presence. Now, there are many promises we could look at. We could, we could consider the promise of peace, the promise of pardon, the promise of protection, the promises of prayer. There are multitudes of them. Uh, the, the promises of prosperity. Oh, they love that in some churches. The trouble is prosperity is not always measured in dollars and cents. It's not even measured in health or wealth. Uh, I have a friend at our church, a very dear brother in the Lord, who has a very broken body, but he has a very, very lively soul and spirit. And uh, he is in an old folks home in his motorized wheelchair, and he is constantly gossiping the gospel everywhere he goes with people. And uh, he often sends me little texts to remind me of the promises of God. As he has an opportunity to witness to somebody, he has this favorite little line that he uses. When someone comes and says, you know, uh, John, uh, or they, I call him JB, they say, you know, John, can you, uh, can you help me? I've got this problem. And they tell him his problem. And his little retort is always that the Bible's got an answer to that. The Bible's got an answer to that. And someone comes along and says, you know, I've been to Mass and I came away feeling very empty and that. And he said, well, yeah, the Bible's got an answer to that. Uh, he had an amazing instant just a, a couple of months ago where he had a man that he'd been seeking to witness to who'd been avoiding him. And whenever they were happy to chat, but as soon as the subject of Jesus came up, this man would make himself scarce. On one occasion, he saw this man sitting over in the corner before dinner time, and he went over to talk to him. And on this occasion, the man was open. And as he spoke with him, you know, the man said, well, you know, you don't realize, he said, you know, when I was a young man, he said, I cheated on my wife. And he said, now that she's died, he said, every day when I think about it, that's the only thing that I can remember is how I brutally cheated on my wife and she never knew it. And I, I'm constantly, I've got this, this terrible sense of guilt and shame knowing that, that I treated my wife so badly. I mean, I spent years, you know, covering it up and, 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 you know, trying to make it up to her and somehow and being a good husband and a good father. But there's always, and John immediately replied and said, well, you know, there's an answer to that. The Bible's got an answer to that. The Bible's got a problem there. And so he said to this man, how about after dinner I show you from the Bible how you can have that need met? And so after dinner that night, he went to the man's room and they sat down and, and he went through the scriptures with him and he led this man to Christ. Forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of all sins. Encouraging him to know that the guilt no longer had to rule and reign in his life. To know that he was forgiven, to know that he was cleansed from his sin. He told me the next morning he was looking forward to having breakfast with this man, but he didn't come to breakfast. And his immediate thought was maybe family came and took him out for the day. And then they got to, to morning tea and up toward lunchtime, he still hadn't seen him. And just in conversation, he said to one of the nurses, he said, oh, where's so-and-so? And they said, oh, didn't you hear he died at midnight? The Bible's got an answer to that. You don't have to die at midnight without Christ. So the promises of God are very, very precious to us. I want us to draw, draw our attention this afternoon to the promise of his presence, the promise of his presence. And here in John 14, our scripture tells us in verse 16, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. And of course, he's speaking of the Holy Spirit. Another title that he gives to him then in verse 17 is even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. 
because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. There's a very important portion of scripture, is it not? Here we speak of the promise of the coming of the paraclete, the one who draws alongside. Many references in the Old Testament would tell us of how the Spirit of God came upon men. The Spirit of the Lord empowered uh, for the furnishings, the design and the manufacture of the furnishings of the tabernacle. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Bezalel and these others. On occasions, the Spirit of the Lord came upon certain leaders to go out into battle came upon certain men and yes, even on certain women to make prophecies concerning something God was going to do or was doing in the nation of Israel. Here there is this transition that is going to take place, the Lord speaks of, where he says, for you know him, for he dwelleth with you. Being in the company of Christ, the word that's used here of, of you know him has the idea of one being familiar with in the company of one, to know him. I mean, I haven't seen Pastor Glenn for years, but I could say, if someone said to me, do you know Glenn Matthews? I could say, yes, I know him. If they said, have you seen him recently? I would have to say, well, no, I haven't, but I know him. Now, you've got to be careful about it, because I know some people say, oh, yes, I know him. And they saw his face on Facebook or Faceache and to Facebook and they immediately said, oh, I know him. And they know absolutely nothing. There. These men are being tutored by the Lord of glory. But who is it that opens the ears, the eyes, the heart and the spirit to an order? For what? No man receiveth the things of the spirit save the spirit of God. The natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. These men, unknown to them, are being taught and instructed by the Lord Jesus through the power of the Spirit of God. There is a beautiful verse in 1 John and chapter 2 that talks about that we have an unction from the Father. It is a ministry of the Spirit of God that makes the child of God's heart tender to the truth of God. It's, it is that which renders us, uh, as, a, as an old friend many years ago, Dr. Mark Minnick would say, it's what renders us teachable. Because without the Spirit of God to lead and to guide us, to instruct us, we would stay in our ignorance. We would know nothing of spiritual truth. We could not comprehend it. We could not understand it. So you can understand perhaps some of the confusion you find occasionally in the Old Testament from men who had had the Spirit of God perhaps come upon them, but were indwelt of the Spirit of God. Read the book of Job and look at the roller coaster of the spiritual emotions of the man who is so downcast, why died I not from the womb? Why did I even see daylight? How could this possibly happen? And then he goes to this mountaintop and says, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. What, a, what, a, what an amazing leap it is from down in the depths of despair to this bright beam of mercy, of trusting in God so completely that even if death takes him, his hope in the Lord, his trust in God has not been shaken. But that's the way the book goes. You read the psalmist. You read of Psalm, that Psalm 73 with Asaph, who begins with a very simple confession, truly God is good to Israel and such a be of a pure heart. He said, but as for me, it's confession time. He said, let me tell you my story. You ready, Amos? Asaph had a story. Asaph started, Asaph started looking at the prosperity of the wicked and it wounded him. What does the scripture tell us? Spirit of a man will sustain his infirmity, but a wounded spirit who can bear? Wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous, but who can stand before envy? He said, I was envious of the wicked. Look at them. Look at them strutting around with their, with their fat tummy stuck out and their big greedy eyes and their great big wads of money and they've got all the wealth in the world. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than the heart can wish. They're not in trouble as other men. Look at them. And when he looked at it, it so grieved him until finally the penny dropped and he said, till I considered their end. 
said, when I went to the house of the Lord, I realized, folks, you understand, you see this in the world today? For many of the arrogant, wealthy people in the world today, and again, I remind you, there's nothing wrong with having wealth as long as the wealth doesn't rule and reign your heart. But the reality is, for multitudes of people in this world today, it's as good as it gets. Whatever pleasures they have, whatever comforts they have, whatever joys they have in this world, that's as good as it gets. Eternity is waiting, eternal misery, eternal suffering, eternal loss. Not a pretty picture. So Asaph was able to say, you know, this is something the Spirit of God obviously suddenly had opened his ears, his eyes and his heart to, and he wrote it down. There it is, all scriptures given by inspiration of God. These men are sold. Now you, you know him, for he dwelleth with you, but he shall be in you. This wonderful prophecy of the coming of the Spirit of God. And according to Ephesians 1, the very moment you and I trust and receive Jesus Christ by faith as our Saviour, we are now sealed by that Holy Spirit of promise. It's like the engagement ring. It's a betrothal. God's given the Spirit of God to indwell the children of God virtually as a down payment of the promise of a finished work. Now, some of you young people wouldn't know this. Do we still have, do we have a young married couple here still? They're still married, I hope. I mean, what's it been? Three weeks? Two weeks? Do you know that once upon a time in this country, it was against the law to break an engagement? Did you know that? State and federal law. We had a law in this country, in, even up into the early, I think 1972, it was finally uh, tossed out, but it was called the breach of promise. That when a young man did the right thing and went and talked to dad and asked for the hand of a young lady in marriage, with well, the moment they consented and there was an exchange of the ring there, that was a legally binding contract. We're a long way from that nowadays, folks. Nowadays, marriage means virtually nothing in many places on this planet and certainly in this country. We've got such a mixed bag view of marriage, it's totally worthless to multitudes, but not so. And you see, that's because marriage, the wedding, is a picture of God's plan. You know, while the world is getting ready for war, heaven's getting ready for a wedding for the marriage supper of the Lamb. What a great day that's going to be. Can't wait to be there. Now, I'm not too sure about that hymn that says, Christ will gird himself and serve us. I don't know whether that, uh, I think it might be, but those who know Christ will be there for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Praise God. But here in this world, promises and pledges and betrothals seem to mean so little. But here he says, he shall be in you. But would you notice this verse here where he says, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. It's interesting, the word comfort that's used here is not the, the common word for comfort that's used in the Bible. It's actually the word where we get the word orphan. Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. You're not going to be fatherless. You're not going to be without comfort with somebody to comfort you. Moreover, we need to understand the promise of his presence. If there's one thing that is clearly taught in the word of God, the promise of his presence ought to give us comfort. Does it comfort you to know his promise? I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Does it comfort you to hear him say, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age, end of the world. Never leave you, never forsake you. You're never on your own. The constant promise of his presence, that from the time I trust Jesus Christ, my Saviour, he will never leave me. I'm not going to sing it for you, but I love that hymn that says, Never Alone. I tell you, if I started singing, we'd empty this building in seconds flat, folks. I love to sing, but I can't stand the pain of people whining when I sing. But it says here, I will not leave you comfortless. 
So we have this promise of comfort. It, it, it is taught again clearly in the Word of God. Here in 2 Thessalonians in chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, Now the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Who was he writing to? The first time Paul went to Thessalonica and ministered, he had three Sabbath days, during which time thousands of people obviously came to know Christ. The writer of the book of Acts is the same writer of the Gospel of Luke, and he uses the same language in that Acts chapter 17 when he says of the devout Greeks, not a few. The same language is used of the feeding of the 5,000, which didn't count the men, uh, didn't count the women and the children, but there were over 5,000 men. We don't know how many got saved in Thessalonica, but it was an amazing response to the preaching of the gospel. But only three Sabbath days. And then Paul was out, down the road to Berea and on his way. These people now were suffering now of their own countrymen. These people were being savagely persecuted. You see, the, the concept of persecution for you and I is not really able to identify with what it teaches in the Bible. When James writes to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, he's writing to people who lost everything. You took a stand and identified with the Son of God. You were now marked. If you had a business, you're out of business. If you had a home, you may well be out of home. If you had a family, you don't got family no more. They took everything from you. And not only was this social ostracism taking place, but many times there was physical abuse. I mentioned the other day about the fireworks. Someone pointed out to me many years ago the history of what we call the Roman candle. Christians tied to the walls around the cities, rolled in coal oil and lit up at sunset. Roman candles, they called them. People being burned alive for their faith in Christ. Martyrs for the Son of God, refusing to deny Jesus Christ, refusing to bow the knee to any Caesar or any earthly authority. We, we're persecuted if someone shuts the door on us when we're trying to share the gospel. We're persecuted when somebody takes one look at our gospel tract and chucks it on the ground. That's about the level. I mean, very few of us will ever go through any of the sufferings these people. And yet he would say, now this is the God of comfort and he's going to use this to comfort your hearts, to establish you unto every good word and every good work. He goes on then in, uh, in, in 2 Corinthians in chapter 1. Blessed be, the, blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforted us in our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. Don't you love Paul's tongue twisters? Try unique, you know, no, it's not in the Bible, don't worry about it. Uh, so when Paul talks about, you know, measuring themselves by themselves are not wise. Here he says, you know, you understand God comforts you. What do you think of when you think of comfort? <laughs> <laughs> comfort that's not what's being spoken of here it's not just a matter of God coming and putting his arm around you and saying there there you'll be alright the word comfort he has the idea of, of, of enduing somebody with strength to encourage them to uplift them to uphold them God doesn't want his children falling in a great big heap the moment something doesn't go right in our lives. And that's why he says we, he comforts us in our tribulation, in our times of temptation, in our times of pain, in our time of loss, in our time of suffering. God comforts us not to make us comfortable, but to make us comforters. Are you a comforter? 
If you have the Spirit of God indwelling you as a child of God, God says you are to be a comforter. Just as the Spirit of God, the paraclete who draws alongside, so it is that the children of God, when we know somebody is hurting, we need to draw alongside them, put our arm around them and, and try and, and uphold them and uplift them. But you know what happens in a lot of places? Somebody falls, somebody fails. Somebody gets caught up in error. No comfort there. Well, you're on your own, buddy. You know the rules, first time you muck me up, shame on you. Second time you muck me up, shame on me for letting you muck me up second time. Really? Where's the comfort? Do you remember the, the letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians? And the churches of Galatia have gone into this gross error of seeking to somehow or other please God by the works of the law. They're getting into the male circumcision ritual and all this and, and thinking that, you know, we're going to keep the commandments. And yet when you come to the end of chapter 25, the tone has changed. And he starts speaking about the fruit of the Spirit. And the warnings about take heed that you do not bite and devour one another. And the simple comparison between those that are living after the flesh, that's the law. That's what the flesh does. The flesh will enslave you. And if you seek to live after the law and keep the law, you will become a slave to your flesh because your flesh will always fail you. If we were to keep the whole law, the scripture tells us, and offend yet in one point, we're guilty of it all. So what's the use? But then he talks about those who walk in the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. And we come to chapter 6. We've addressed all the problems. We've sought to correct this error, but now somebody's got a job to do. And chapter 6 and verse 1 says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What is that? Go get them. Go get them. You know the people who are not here. You know the people who have gone astray. You know the people who have gone into error and false doctrine. You know the people who are grieved about something. You know the people who are frustrated. You know the people who need somebody to simply reach out and love them and care for them. As we said last night, he's not asking you and I to do something we cannot do. We can do this. You say, oh no, brother Chris, you don't understand. You know, I'm not real good. No. How good do you have to be to simply reach out to someone and show that you care? Comfort. The promise of his presence ought to give us comfort. Over here in Matthew in chapter 9, here's another element that we need to consider. That the promise of his presence ought to give us compassion. Verse 35 says, And Jesus went about all the cities and the villages teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep, having no shepherd. He's looking at the multitudes who are lost, who are hellbound, who are dead in sin, and who without knowing him and resting in him and trusting him, they are going to be lost forever. They are helpless, they are hopeless, and it moved him with compassion. Now that you and I have that same Lord Jesus residing in us, when we look out at a lost world, does it move us with compassion? Does it stir our heart? It says here that he was moved with compassion. A stirring of the heart. This gnawing effect within the soul of a man that says, I've got to do something here. And immediately his response was, pray ye. The harvest truly is plenteous, but the labour is a fruit. Pray ye the Lord of the harvest. 
You, you pray. You pray specifically. You pray for the Lord. Be we bold enough to say, Lord, use me. Lord, here am I, send him. No, 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 Lord, here am I, send me. Most preachers' favourite hymns, take my wife and let me be. No, no, we want to ask God, Lord, move me with compassion on these multitudes. How many people that are lost in sin and know not the gospel will you walk past from tomorrow morning at six o'clock to Sunday service next week? You live next door to them? They're over the back fence. They're on your right. They're on your left. They're across the road. They're at the petrol station. They're at the place where you work or the school where you go. And every one of them has one need in common. It's not about shape or size. It's not about money. It's all about Christ. We need to ask the Spirit of God that indwells us to give us eyes that look on the multitudes that they are indeed sheep scattered without a shepherd. See, David could boast and say, the Lord is my shepherd. I'm wondering sometimes if he was sitting out under a tree there watching his flock and across the meadow there in a very dry, dusty patch with the little little whirly winds blowing dust everywhere, there were these sheep staggering around. They haven't been watered for days. They haven't been fed for a week because the hireling doesn't care for the sheep. But he looked at those who are not being cared for, those who are not loved, those who are seemingly rejected and unwanted, those who are despised, and he looks out at them and says, look at what God's done for me. And you realise every person you and I see over the course of the next week, they have the same need you and I once had. Where would I be today if somebody hadn't brought me under the sound of the gospel? What if someone hadn't pointed me to know Jesus Christ as my saviour? Where would I be today? I wouldn't be 68 years old, I tell you. I would have been dead and buried long ago. When I worked at the psychiatric hospital, I still had a bad drinking problem. I drink like a fish. As a young person, I blamed my dad because my dad was a drunkard. It was a real shock to actually wake up to myself one day and realise I'm the problem. I had a discussion with a person from the AA just recently and they said, oh, I heard you used to be an alcoholic. I said, I have never been an alcoholic. They said, that's funny. I said, no, I've never called myself an alcoholic. I call myself a drunkard. I'm like, hmm, 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 what's the difference? I said, well, an alcoholic points at the bottle and says, that's my problem. A drunkard points at himself and says, That's the problem. I've got a sinful, lustful heart. That's the problem. Big difference. But I remember going to a staff party at the psychiatric hospital. We had patients in that hospital in their 40s and 50s that couldn't walk without holding on to a walking frame, who could not toilet themselves, dress themselves, feed themselves because they were alcohol damaged. One man used to drive a bulldozer and drink two quarts of whiskey every day while he was working until one day they found him passed out on his bulldozer and he never really woke up properly. He could do nothing for himself. He couldn't, he couldn't, he couldn't part his hair. He's virtually lost the use of his arms. All he does is just lay around in a beanie chair all day in a lazy boy or on a bed. And you don't know when he needs to go to the bathroom until you know he's been to the bathroom and you have to take him and change him just like you do with a little baby. And it was sad to look at these people and realise, you know, this is what alcohol did to these people. This is what alcohol did to them. They did to themselves. Nobody made them. They had a choice. They made a choice to drink. The shock for me was that one day after this party, I was in the office signing up some papers with Dr. Zutovan. And he turned around and he said, Chris, can I, have, can I have a personal discussion with you? And I said, yeah, sure then, what's up? He said, 
I'm worried about you. How old are you? And I said, um, uh, 22. He said, I've seen the way you drink. He said, you see Mr. So-and-so out there? That's you. That's you in five years' time. Not 30, not 40. You'll be like that in your 20s. It scared me. I stopped drinking for a whole fortnight. Didn't go to the pubs or the clubs or anything. I was a man, you know, this, this is serious. Why did that man tell me that? He's an Indian. He's a doctor. He's a psychiatrist. I don't know that he was a Christian, but he was moved with compassion when he saw my state to tell me something. But we don't have to talk about alcohol or anything else. Just talk about being lost and on their way to the lake of fire or to move us with compassion. The promise of his presence ought to, yes, comfort us, but it ought to give us compassion. Another element here is that the promise of his presence ought to give us caution. According to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13, all things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The psalmist said, I thought on my ways and turned. The psalmist also said in Psalm 34, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears are open unto their cry. Proverbs chapter 5 verse 21, the Lord tells us, for the, for the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord and he pondereth all his goings. We spoke last night briefly of the judgment seat of Christ. Every activity you and I have ever engaged in as a child of God has already been evaluated by the King of Heaven. Our words, our thoughts, our actions, deeds, our intents, our attempts, everything about us is under the constant evaluation of the Lord of glory. You know what that should do for us? Be careful. Be cautious. Ryan remembers the little song I mentioned yesterday. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Careful little feet where you go. Careful little hands. Careful little ears. And we think that's a simple little song for Sunday school children, and yes it is, but it is a deep theological truth for every child of God. God is weighing. God is evaluating and God is rewarding every man according to their works. We sometimes think that the big payola for you and I comes at the judgment seat of Christ. The reality is multitudes of God's people are already reaping spiritual poverty in their life because they are never cautious about how they live for Christ. Remember the, 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 the sad indictment, the judgment of God on David for his sin with Bathsheba, that he had given the enemies of God cause to blaspheme. Now we wouldn't want anyone to be able to say that of us. And if they don't know the Bible and they don't know the Lord, they're probably never ever going to say, God's going to judge you for this. But the reality is God is already judging his people. And the Lord, the scripture tells us, will judge his people and he will judge them in righteousness. Are you careful? Are you cautious about the places you go, the things that you do, the way you conduct your walk of life? One of my favourite passages for youth ministries is in 1 Peter in chapter 1. Where he says, As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. And the word conversation there is not yap, 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 yap. It's your walk of life. That's why Paul said to the Ephesians, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that you walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from God, from the, from the foolishness that's in them. They, 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 because of their greediness and their ungodliness and their love of, of, of that which is disgusting and perverted to God, he says, you know, God's given them over to be past feeling. 
That's a description that should never be fitted onto any child of God. But it fits quite a few children of God because we are not careful. 2 Timothy in chapter 4, and we will finish here. God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. The psalmist said, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Paul was on his way to be executed. His days were numbered. Oh, he had seen others delivered from the hand of the persecutor. But he seems to be fully persuaded in 2 Timothy 4 that his days are now numbered. He tells us in verse 6, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I always muse on this verse and think to myself, isn't that an interesting way to talk about dying? The time of my departure is at hand. They're going to take him out and chop off his head and he sounds like he's going to catch a bus. What calm, what confidence, what courage in the face of adversity. But he says, I fought a good fight, I've finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not only... And not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. Can we qualify that by saying, now, I, how many of you here are looking forward to the rapture? Come on, be honest. Yeah, praise God. Oh, I'm worried. Some people are not looking forward. We'll talk to you later. You know, the problem with the promise of God coming to receive us to himself is that most Christians I meet are looking forward to their disappearing, not his appearing. I just want to get out of this place. As it was described, it's like a, a lunatics of running the asylum. It's a crazy, crazy, sinful, wicked world. And, and we're looking forward to the exit. But Paul says, no, I'm looking forward to his appearing. But notice down here, he speaks on a very personal note. And says in verse 16, well, actually, let's go to verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works, of whom, be, uh, of whom be thou ware also, for he hath greatly withstood our words. At my first answer no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me that by me the preaching might be fully known and that all the Gentiles might hear and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will, and will preserve me under his heavenly kingdom to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Here this man was able to say exactly what the scripture would say, to be strong and to be of good courage. The courage that only the spirit of God can give knowing that Timothy is going to become almost a ministry orphan with the end of Paul's life, he begins that address by reminding him, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And then he goes on to detail for him that his end is near. And yet here he is still strengthening, still comforting, still encouraging still exercising great compassion toward his son in the faith and to you and I through this, the inspired word of God. Beloved, dark days are coming in this country. Wicked forces under the influence of those principalities and powers and those rulers of spiritual wickedness and darkness in those high places, they are moving things into place to turn this beautiful country into a prison for the children of God one day. We have uh, tenants already being put in place for a so-called misinformation act. 
in Victoria. They're moving to legislate that you are no longer allowed to go and knock on doors or letterbox. Unless it's official mail, you can't put anything in anybody's mailbox. And you can't go and knock on doors. You know how it started? Salesmen. We have a constant barrage in our area of people. They're coming. You want better electricity? You want gas? You want solar panels? You want shower heads? Whatever it is. They ring us up. Every day we get a phone call. You know, the Victorian government, who are broke, are going to spend millions of dollars giving me shower heads I don't need, light bulbs I don't want, solar panels that are going to need to be replaced in 10 years. And yeah, they'll give you $5,000 worth now, but it's going to cost you 15 grand to replace them. And you won't be able to do a thing about it. And we've got all these things in place, folks. It is a wicked world. If this misinformation act was to become enshrined, we have other people who will decide what is true and what is false. What do you think they're going to do with the gospel? See, the very concept of keeping salesmen off the doorstep doesn't just keep the salesmen off the doorstep, it keeps the gospel off the doorstep. There are still churches in this country that believe in old, excuse me, Old-fashioned knocking on doors to say good morning. We're from Condal Park Bible Church and we'd simply like to give you a simple message concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ and how you can know you have a home in heaven and your sins forgiven. Have you got a moment to talk to me? Slam goes the door and you move on to the next house and good morning, we're from Condal Park Bible Church and we're simply, and it goes, you can't do that anymore. You know, in Victoria, we have laws where I'm not allowed to talk about gender reassignment. If a kid comes to me at a kid's club or a youth camp, if my granddaughter wants to talk to me about, you know, she's being told you need to do this and this and this with your body, I'm not allowed to say to her, that's not a good idea. I can't tell her legally, hey, that's wicked. Don't even think like that. I do. But it's against the law. In fact, anywhere I go in Australia, it, it, I am breaking the law of the state of Victoria if I enter into discussion and counsel with a person on such an issue. They could frog march me back from Fitzroy Crossing in West Australia and bring me down into a court and I could be prosecuted for having broken the law. Wouldn't that be wonderful to stand up in a court and swear on a Bible? Oh, that's right, we still have Bibles in our courts. Oh, that'll make things interesting, won't it? What a crazy world. You know what we need, people? We need courage. We need courage. The days are coming when we are going to be made to stand or we will flee. Now, I understand there have been fiery trials where men and women have not stood the test and we do not sit in judgment of them. Because we haven't been there. We haven't faced a gun or a knife. I had a man approach me at a church, an Algerian man approached me in a church in country South Australia. And as he was talking to me about the blessed prophet Muhammad and all these different things, he said, I was outside tonight and I listened to you speaking about the prophet Jesus. He said, I'm very interested and I'd like to talk to you about the prophet Jesus. And I said, well, look, before we go any further, let me assure you, I'm not preaching and teaching about the prophet Jesus. I believe Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh, that he is God the Son. And he said, but, well, anyway, he said, uh, do, do you also speak about the prophet Muhammad? I said, I do not believe Muhammad was a prophet. And he had this shocked look on his face. And he said, who, who do you think Muhammad was? And being a little careless, I said, I think Muhammad was a dirty old man who married a little girl and he's just a lost, guilty sinner and he needed to know Jesus Christ as his saviour. And for some reason he got angry. And he said, sir, if you were in my country, I would have the honour of cutting your throat. I said, well, we have a home ground advantage. We don't do that where I live. 
A week later, when I was in another church in Adelaide, there on the, on the front page of a newspaper, 70 people in a church in the Algiers were butchered because they would not deny Jesus Christ. Men, women, children, down to babies. They killed a lot of them, demanding at gunpoint that they would deny Christ and embrace Mohammedism, Islam. And they refused and they died. Now, not everybody passes the test. Let me ask you, will the Spirit of God give you courage to do what's right when the fire comes? When the flames are beating all around you? We love to sing of walking through the flames, but will we walk or will we run? Will we freeze or will we flee? Or will we fail? Will we fall? We were blessed in the ministry of Dr. John Dreisbach, old missionary to Africa. He has a film made about his ministry in Africa called Beyond the Night. I was blessed to be in his home on some occasions and enjoy great fellowship with him. I remember a story, a testimony he shared with us many, many years ago. He spoke of a young Polish Jewish pastor in a town in Poland when the Nazis invaded. When they first came in and started down the road from where this town was building one of their death camps, people went about their business. The commandant allowed the liberty of the people to continue to meet and to work and they still had their church services on Sunday and their prayer meetings through the week and, and everything was fine until that commandant fell from favour. The new commandant, when he came in, the first thing he did was go around and round up everybody with any Jewish identity. And when this man, Benjamin Sabaruka, and his wife were challenged about their ethnicity, they confessed to being Jewish and were immediately taken to the death camp. Over the next weeks and weeks and weeks, they went to the commandant and pleaded with him. The rulers, the town officials went pleading with them to give us back our pastor. We will do whatever you want. You can have whatever you wish, but we need our pastor. Our pastor gives us guidance. Our pastor is a blessing to us. Our community, we need our pastor. Please give us. And the answer was always no until one day the commandant said, tomorrow morning at sunrise. Tomorrow morning at sunrise at the prison. Some of the people didn't go. Some of the people were fearful that the moment they appeared at the gate of the prison, they would themselves be taken prisoners for being sympathisers for the Jew. But at sunrise, sure enough, the gates opened and out walked Benjamin Sabaruka and his wife. People wept. People began singing, singing to joy. Everyone was just so happy. They had their pastor. Until the young man put up his hands and said, stop, stop. He said, we cannot stay with you. We cannot stay with you. The people in here need us more than you do. And they sang a hymn and they prayed and wept as he turned around and walked back into the death camp and died. Courage. The kind of courage the Spirit of God is speaking of. The kind of courage the Apostle Paul is witnessing us to. The kind of courage that Paul said to Timothy, this is what you've got by the Spirit of God. Not a spirit of fear, but of power and of love, and of a sound mind. Do you know why you're here? You know where you are, you know who you are, and why you are. And the promise of his presence gives us courage, comfort, compassion, caution. But it's a promise. It's fixed, it's settled, 
It's a promise that will not be taken from us. It's not one of Dad's fishing trips that falls in a heap because the weather changes. It's a promise of God, the God that cannot lie. And shall he not make it good? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you and praise you for your precious word and these exceeding great and precious promises. Oh, how we so often struggle in the simple things of being found faithful, to be found faithful and true in our walk with thee, so easily put to flight and intimidated by the stamping foot of a wicked world. And yet we are here with purpose. We're not orphans. He has not left us. Our Saviour has not left us comfortless. He has come. He is abiding with us forever. Physically, he is coming again to receive us to himself, that where he is there, we may be also. Oh, the comfort that belongs to the children of God, regardless of how great the storm is, how dark the night and how wicked the day. Oh, the compassion that the children of God should be able to exercise toward the sons of men who are lost and know not the Saviour and need, so desperately need, to hear the message of the Gospel. Lord, I pray you do a mighty work in our hearts. We need to be careful about how we live this life that does not belong to us, it belongs to you. For the love of Christ constraineth us, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him who died for them. As Paul said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And there are days coming when we will need to take courage for the days ahead that we might be found faithful. Lord, I pray, encourage, strengthen and challenge us tonight to rest in this wonderful promise. When you come, may we be found faithful. In Christ's name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. Our closing hymn is May the Lord Find Us Faithful. If you could join me in standing and singing this together. Mm -hmm. 